quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I started noticing something was up the week before the Super Bowl. Earlier this year, Erin Mathewson started to feel like her body was falling apart. I had cooked some chicken, ate it, and I felt bad. So I just figured I had maybe food poisoning. And normally what happens is, you know, your stomach hurts a little bit, you have a bowel movement, we move on with our lives. Um, That didn't happen this time. Instead, the pain lingered. And then it started to do the strangest thing. It started to move to other parts of her body. And I remember feeling um, in my arms, like my forearms, just this kind of like burning sensation, like when you've worked out really hard and you have that kind of like feel the burn pain, except I hadn't done anything to earn that. Like I had picked up like a spoon or something and I was like, why am I burning? This is so weird. So Erin calls a doctor who tells her she probably has a cold. So she takes some ibuprofen and tries to get through the work week. And end of the week, I go to get my lashes done. And normally that's like a really relaxing, lovely experience. I lay down, I listen to a podcast, and I fall asleep for an hour. But this time when I went to go lay down, my back really hurt and it it hurt to breathe in. I remember I had to pull in my knees to my stomach and that kind of helped relieve whatever was going on with my back. And then when I was finished, the elastician was like, you should go to the hospital. Erin's kind of reluctant still. She feels like the emergency room is for people with broken bones or open wounds. Plus, this is the middle of a pandemic. But she goes anyway. And when she tells the doctor about her symptoms, he immediately orders a blood test. The first thing he said to me when he came back with my blood test results was, has anyone in your family ever died young from a heart attack? My answer was, not that I know of. I think that's when he said, we're so glad you came in, you had a heart attack. And I remember being like, what? I just couldn't believe I had had a heart attack. I'm 38 years old. I am healthy. I'm a marathon runner. I exercise five to six days a week. I eat kale. So I thought I was good. Now, I have to just stop right here and tell you that this story was a huge shock to me. Not only is a heart attack in someone so young and so physically active rare, but Aaron is also someone I know personally. She was one of the producers for my old podcast, Coronavirus Fact Versus Fiction. Seeing her go through this really hit home to our entire production team. How widespread and how wide-ranging heart issues can be. And how important it is that we talk about heart health in the context of improving our lives. You may not know this, but this past year, more people in the United States died from heart disease than any recent year on record. Even in the middle of a pandemic, heart disease killed twice as many Americans in 2020 as COVID-19 did. So as we talk about re-emerging from the pandemic and rethinking our habits and our priorities, we have to pay attention to the health of our hearts. 
Now, there is another aspect to this. I do believe that if we as a country had been in better shape, cardiovascular shape, at the start of the pandemic, we might have been less vulnerable to COVID-19 and fared a bit better. So today on the show, we're going to explore what you can do today to get your heart in better shape, what role race and gender play in the risk for heart disease and how you might be treated, and what you should be mindful of, even if you're already in great health. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and it's time to start chasing life. First things first, I want to define a couple of the terms we're talking about here. A heart attack is when the blood flow to a part of the heart muscle itself is greatly reduced or blocked, leading to the death of that muscle. Heart disease is the umbrella term for a lot of different cardiovascular conditions, many of which are related to the buildup of plaque in the arteries. I think about this all the time because, as it so happens, heart disease runs in my family. When my dad was just 47, he developed crushing chest pain one day while he was out for a walk. I can still remember getting the panic phone call from my mom and then dialing 911. My dad ended up needing an emergency four-vessel bypass operation, which thankfully went well. And today, he's alive and healthy. But I have to tell you, the experience was truly terrifying. And so many years later, I still remember that day so well. It fundamentally changed the way I think about my own health and what I needed to do to avoid having an experience like my father did. We know that 80% of heart disease is preventable. That's Dr. Clyde Yancey. He's the chief of cardiology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He's also former president of the American Heart Association. We know that even when you have a genetic predisposition, especially then, significant adoption embrace of heart-healthy lifestyle choices really does change the natural history. You can't outrun your parents because we are who our parents were. But you can certainly modify that expression because prevention works. Dr. Yancey is an expert on preventing heart failure, which is a form of heart disease in which the heart doesn't pump blood as well as it should. He's also devoted a lot of time and research to narrowing the gap in disparate health care, especially for racial minorities. I come from a family acculturated in the Deep South and lived in a fully segregated area of uh, Louisiana that was an unincorporated community that was just adjacent to Baton Rouge. Um, this was the height of segregation. The civil rights uh, movement was just beginning. All of my uncles and aunts became school teachers, and they were all educated at historically black colleges and universities. Thus, my love for education, it was embedded in me. You have to do this. But there was one flaw. Every single one of my aunts and uncles, obese, hypertensive, renal disease. We affectionately call them the Yancey Nine, and they all died early due to heart disease. So I've been on this strident path to say, I'm going to outrun, outwork, out-exercise high blood pressure. I have a modest amount of hypertension, but I control it assiduously with lifestyle. So I take the same perspective you have is that I know it's out there. I know it, I'm preset for this, but what can I do to avoid it? I guess it gets at this question, Dr. Yancey, what are some of the things that really put someone at greater risk? Again, keeping in mind the backdrop that 80% of this may be preventable, what are those, what are those risk factors? You know, I like to make these kinds of answers very simple. It's what we eat, it's how we recreate, and it's how we engage 
physically. What I mean by that is that if we make choices, dietary choices that are not aligned towards better health, if you consider tobacco, alcohol, recreational drugs as recreation, those decisions end up having consequences. And then the way in which we engage with life, if you're sedentary as opposed to being physically active, that has a consequence. So when I talk to lay communities about how can you prevent heart disease, I make it very simple. Eat less, do more, and know your numbers. And oh, by the way, don't smoke. I mean, that message took, what, 15 seconds? <laughs> but it's something you can remember, and you can say, okay, this is it. And if you have difficulty with it, forget about the dietary choices. Just eat less of what you've been eating because it's really portion control is the first step. If you don't really like the exercise, I'm not talking about wearing spandex and going to a gym. Just get up and move. Be physically active. And here's the other key consideration. We should all know our blood pressure, our weight. And if you've had a recent visit with a physician, our cholesterol profile, like we know our cell number. So eat less, do more know your numbers. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. I think so many people are so willing to outsource, if you will, some of that that critical data, not think about it for themselves. Ugh, I think my doctor has that information. One thing that I thought was interesting, and I'm just curious what you think about this, is just overall race as a risk factor. As you might know, South Asians as a group have one of the highest rates per capita of death from heart disease in the United States. You probably saw that same study why do you think that is? So there are any number of questions there, and you and I could have an entirely separate podcast about the disproportionate burden of heart disease as experienced by different geographies, races, and ethnicities. But suffice it to say that we know that it's an evident risk. And we know that along with that risk, there is a disproportionate risk for diabetes. And we know that there is a necessity for really thoughtful and early screening but again, we can't ignore what we've been talking about, because if you compare what we knew two generations ago with your grandparents or your great-grandparents to what we know now with our contemporary generation, we have so many more tools at our disposal. Hmm. What are some of those big discoveries that have happened over the last several decades since the time that you and I were kids? Are there particular breakthroughs that the medical community now understands? Let's start simple and go complex. When you and I were younger, it was commonplace to see tobacco ads right. on television. It was commonplace to see athletes smoking. It was commonplace to see ads for beef, for dairy. Those things have changed, the power of the media. Then you get into the true scientific discoveries. When you think about what happens when you have a heart attack, when I trained as an intern the person having a heart attack was in the hospital 28 days, six mm. weeks, and came out of the hospital literally limping along, facing almost an inevitable burden of heart failure. Now, if you're in the hospital longer than 48 hours, something really went amiss. We're treating heart attacks in a way that we never imagined, and we're saving lives due to heart disease and restoring functionality to people that would have faced a lifelong experience of disability. And think about where we are right now. We're on the cusp of using gene editing, and I say this very carefully, to cure some forms of heart disease. That's breathtaking. I, I do want to ask, this is always a, a thing that I think about when talking to patients. So if you say 80% is preventable, when someone does have a heart problem then, 
there is this issue that they may then blame themselves, right? I remember when my father, uh, Dr. Yancey, when he was 47 years old, and they're taking him back for bypass surgery. I remember him looking at me saying, I must have just really done a lot of things wrong to be where I am right now. And that was kind of heartbreaking for me to hear that because, I mean, on top of everything that he's going through, to have that blame, he's blaming himself. How do you deal with that with your own patients? How do you navigate that blame versus action versus, you know, just getting things done? When I come in as a physician caring for someone, my lens is much broader. My sample volume is larger. And I can comfortably say the fact that we're having this conversation means that something is working in your favor. Mm. Had you not done the things that you have done, this almost assuredly would have happened earlier. So when you provide hope and you provide context, then you can provide buffer to this sense of self-blame. But there's one other dimension here that's very important. We talk about this as the teachable moment. I have to tell you, I've seen people get religion on a stretcher going to the operating room, and I mean religion with a small R. They will come out, never touch a cigarette. They will come out and only eat kale. They'll come out and join two health clubs, buy two exercise bicycles, and stick with it. You never know how that switch gets turned on, but I see it all the time. There's that teachable moment that's got so much impact. But there's also that concern about guilt, and that's where someone that's got a broader lens and that's got a bigger sample volume can really help frame it differently. I mean, it's exactly as you say, Dr. Yancey. By the way, my father's still living. It's been 30 years now almost uh, since this episode that I'm talking about. But he came out of that never really worrying about his health before to, as you point out, joining a health club, many times doing two-a-days, as he calls them, workouts, eating very low quantities of meat. It was amazing. And my brother and I followed suit. That shouldn't have been what it took to get us there, to have that really, really uh, frightening time in our lives. But, you know, we, we did make the best of it. So I guess, you know, for anybody listening, you don't want to get to the point where you need that kind of wake-up call. Take our word for it that if you do these things, it can make a huge difference in your life. So what about you now? I'm curious, during this COVID time, for you overall, were there patients still coming in? I mean, did you see the same volume of patients? And if not, how much of an impact do you think that had, patients not coming to the hospital? We were overrun with patients to the extent that we had to create four COVID-specific ICUs. But even still, with us building out temporary capacity, there were still patients who didn't come, who stayed home, with their strokes, with their heart attacks, with their sudden cardiac events, and we lost disproportionately way too many lives. There's not a person, not a person, who doesn't appreciate the burden of COVID-19 and the deaths attributable to that. If we could get the attention on heart disease that we now have on COVID-19, particularly since the consequences of heart disease are actually greater, imagine what we could do in terms of recalibrating lifestyles and making wiser choices. After the break, we're going to talk about the way gender influences heart disease. This is going to surprise you. We're also going to reflect on the work women have done to ensure everyone gets the proper diagnosis and the proper treatment. Welcome back to Chasing Life. 
I want to tell you about one of the biggest misconceptions about heart disease that we haven't talked about yet. And it's this idea that heart disease primarily affects men. Now, it is true that men develop heart disease earlier than women as a general rule. But heart disease is still the leading cause of death for women over the age of 65. So this misconception can actually have a negative impact on how women are diagnosed and how they are treated for heart disease. I've seen myself women struggling with heart disease and being given medications for anxiety and other things because, you know, some clinician thought that the reason they couldn't breathe was because they were too nervous without thinking that they might be nervous because they were having a heart attack. That's Dr. Heder Vereich. He's a cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, associate director of heart failure at Veterans Affairs Boston, and an instructor at Harvard Medical School. He says that beyond affecting the way doctors identify heart disease in female patients, gender expectations can also bias the patients themselves. Many women with heart disease delay coming to the hospital even when they're having chest pain because they might feel that, oh, this might be acid reflux or this might be something else. It's probably not my heart. And that's exactly what happened to Aaron, my former producer, who suffered a heart attack last winter. Remember, just 38 years old, a marathoner. I think what took me so long to even go to the ER... You know, I was hurting and stuff was weird, but it wasn't like the worst pain I'd ever felt in my life. You know, men, apparently, when they have heart attacks, it feels like an elephant is sitting on their chest. But that's not so much what happens with women. So, yeah, I would have probably ignored this and just pushed through it. And I'm now learning I'm going to have to expand my toolbox. And if something is happening that's weird with my body, that's equally as important as having pain. The cause of Aaron's heart attack turned out to not be related to heart disease directly. Rather, it was caused by an underlying condition. But it still shows how powerful our own biases can be. Fact is, it can be so hard to resist these biases. They run across our healthcare system. They run across our society. But doing so can be life-saving. And it can even lead to important medical discoveries and true paradigm shifts. In fact, Dr. Varich says one of the best examples of this is the story of a disease called SCAD or spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Women who experience SCAD often end up with an unusual kind of heart attack, one that's not caused by a buildup of plaque in blood vessels, which is what most doctors are used to, but instead by a tear that occurs in the coronary artery. That's a blood vessel that supplies blood to the heart itself. We didn't really understand this process when this first came up, and in fact, Women would come in with SCAD to the hospital, would either get misdiagnosed and be sent home, or even when we did the procedures, we would essentially treat them as if they still had a plaque rupture, even though this process was totally different. In fact, I've had the pleasure of talking to a patient who's really been a leader in this field. Her name's Catherine Leon, and she had SCAD herself, and she was at home and she kept having these chest pain episodes and was essentially rejected from the emergency room as, you know, a quote-unquote hysterical woman until she had a female physician in the emergency room who took her case seriously and did the workup and essentially showed that she had this process. But at this time, Catherine Leon was told that well, this is such a rare entity, you might never ever meet another woman with this disease because the idea was that this is something that almost never happens. But when Catherine Leon went on the internet, she started finding women all over the country who had SCAD. And so they essentially formed this patient-driven movement in which they brought 
this knowledge to light that not only is CAD something that's extremely dangerous, which has nothing to do with the classic types of heart attack, but it was actually much more common amongst women than we had previously known. So that by the time I went to medical school and I went to residency, this was something that I was taught quite routinely. And to me, this is just another example of the lens that women sometimes have to go to, to, to prove to the medical establishment that they're not just different types of males, that, that they are in fact different, they have different biology, and that we really need to pay close attention to their bodies and to their health. I think this is such an important story because it just goes to show that we can make big progress in how we recognize and treat heart issues by simply sharing our own experiences with others and then spreading that awareness. As Dr. Varite reminded me, when it comes to taking care of our hearts, one of the most important things we can do is to educate our friends and family about heart disease and to remember that we all truly have the power to reduce our own risk. The real issue here is that many people think that heart disease is a disease of the past, that a lot of other diseases have a much greater cultural footprint in our imaginations. Things like cancer are seen as so much more dangerous and much more fatal than heart disease. And so I really think that we really need to raise the profile of just how deadly heart disease remains. And I think it has to be raised in the context of the fact that we have agency over this condition. One might not be able to control if one develops cancer. A lot of times cancer can happen because of random mutations. But for the most part, heart disease is entirely preventable. So we need to empower people to know that not only is heart disease bad, but that we can do something to actually minimize our risk of heart disease. Maintaining a healthy heart is at the heart, if you will, of maintaining a healthy self. Stay active, eat right, and be aware of the way your race and your gender could affect your risk for heart problems and even which symptoms you might develop. You just need to do the common sense and sometimes boring stuff you already know. One of the things at the top of the list, exercise. I know we talked about this just last week, but it has so many benefits. Also, keep your blood pressure, your blood sugar, and your cholesterol levels as well as your weight at healthy levels. A lot of that can just be accomplished by eating right. And by that, I mean more fruits and vegetables, you know this, eating healthy fats, and relying more on lean proteins like chicken and fish. Also, reduce stress. And what I mean by that is not eliminating it, but finding real breaks from the stress. Get enough sleep, spend time with friends and loved ones, and if you're a smoker, absolutely quit. As an extra bonus, what you do to help your heart will also help my favorite organ, the brain. The same circulatory system that starts with the heart also serves the brain. So what's good for one is generally good for the other as well. So take care of your heart so you can feel better, live better, live smarter. The absence of health is the first and greatest infraction on our chance for happiness. So we have to work together on that. You um, know the name of this podcast is is Chasing Life. What does chasing life mean to you? Chasing life is twofold. It's a respect for life, how fragile it is and how precious it is. Chasing life means I want to be immersed in that space where I can really rejoice in the simpleness of life, of being connected with others. But then I'm also chasing life because, like you, I'm trying to outrun a heritage 
and I want to be able to maintain my health for as long as possible. And now a question from one of our listeners. Hi, Dr. Gupta. I had COVID-19 back in December with very mild symptoms. Do I need to get the COVID vaccine even though I'm still showing antibodies? And if I do, will my side effects be more intense since I still have the COVID-19 antibodies? All right, so let me tell you what the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say. They recommend that you still get a COVID vaccine even if you've already had COVID. That's the bottom line. But let me explain it like this. As you point out, tests on your blood show that you already have some immunity, but we now know that that's going to vary quite a bit from person to person. So it's not clear how strong that immunity is, nor how long it's going to last. Some scientists believe the strength of an individual's immune response may also be related to how sick they were in the first place. The point is, there's a lot of unknowns. A vaccine is believed to offer more reliable, consistent immunity as opposed to natural infection, and it has very little risk of harm. As for side effects, there's no evidence that people who've had COVID are more or less likely to experience them, but again, how a person responds is going to be highly individual. I hope that helps. And bottom line, I hope you get vaccinated. As always, keep the questions coming. We're going to be working on an episode about sleep. This is so important to me. I never used to get enough thinking I could squeak by with just a few hours. I've changed my tune on this. We'd love to hear your personal experiences as well. How has the pandemic affected your sleep habits? Do you have insomnia for the first time? Or are you now taking afternoon naps? Tell us about your sleep problems and send in those questions. Record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back Tuesday. Thanks again for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. This episode was produced by Rachel Cohn, Jordan Gaspare, Paige Sutherland, and Grace Walker. Our medical writer is Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.